This is transmission one of seven, sent five years after the bomb was dropped on New York. My name is Elle, and this is what I saw. In the event of an emergency, having an action plan can increase the likelihood of your survival as well as that of your family. An action plan should include a meeting point, assigned responsibilities, and a checklist. This list should include food, clean water, toiletries, a first aid kit, and any required prescription medication. If the emergency is a chemical or nuclear attack, safe housing, such as a fallout shelter, should be made available. And remember, in the event of a catastrophe, having an action plan is far more likely to save your life than any government assistance. Page 10 of the Atomic Survival Guide. It was a nice, normal day. Sunny. I was procrastinating at work, staring out across the city, sprawling down beneath my 98th Street view on the east side of Manhattan. Thousands of people moving on the streets below, or hidden just beyond windows and walls. I watched the ones, lucky enough to have escaped to the outside. Bright dots of color moving across the streets as the sun blared down on them. I watched and wondered where they were headed. Envy crept up in me. I was stuck at work for the rest of the day. By the time I left, the sun would be setting. The day's heat would be receding, and it would feel like I was getting their leftovers. Then the emergency broadcast came without warning. They use the Emergency Alert System, or EAS. If you have the EAS, your time is pretty close to mine. Ballpark, anyway. My headphones were always in my ears, but not always turned on. Sometimes, I forgot to hit play and would accidentally find my thoughts. They buzzed into my ears with angry, urgent tones, smashing the silence in my head. I had been so engrossed in the view outside, the park and the reservoir glistening faintly in the warm summer afternoon, that I had jumped out of my seat and pulled the headphones out of my ears like they were hot. Jesus! I cursed at them, as if they'd apologized for ruining my daydream. Catastrophic nuclear event imminent. Estimated time to find shelter? Twenty minutes. Twenty minutes? I can do that, I thought, because I had planned for this. It feels macabre to admit it now, but I guess you could say I was a bit obsessed with the end of the world. My husband Don would probably say that I was pretty normal, at times even boring, but that I did have this one weird thing that occupied more of my time than it should have. Books about Chernobyl and North Korea littered our apartment. Vacations in Vegas were spent at the National Atomic Testing Museum instead of sipping drinks by the pool. To be honest, I think Don thought the whole thing was kind of cute, like I was a dog that kept carrying around the same beat-up toy she's had since puppyhood.
You can keep Bubba if it makes you happy. Just don't pee in the apartment. Maybe we should have seen it coming. Tensions had been running high for so long. But we had the baby boomer's strange, calm reassurances that this wasn't the first time things had been strained. Our parents were telling us that this had run its course before and that it would run its course again because no one actually wants to use nuclear bombs. Because doing so is objectively crazy. And we listened because they were our parents. But the boomers' Cold War had been different from the new Cold War. Ours was too fast-paced, confusing, with too many players involved to keep track. Amidst the mess that was unfolding, it was too hard to keep track of what was happening where, a chaos no one seemed to quite grasp. All of it slipped through our fingers before we could point at anyone and denounce them a danger. But these things don't just happen out of the blue. Missiles, shooting through skies and clouds and distance with a specific target in mind. Someone thought that we deserved this. I didn't look up as the alert scrolled across my screen. Instead, I immediately texted Don to go ahead with the plan. Okay, he texted back just as quickly, and told me that he'd meet me at the elevators in the Hess building, the agreed-upon rendezvous point. I wanted to tell him to hurry, but I didn't. The only problem was that our go-bag, the bag that had enough food to sustain us for two weeks, was still in our apartment, which was three blocks south of the hospital. I had assumed that we'd have more time to get underground. But I would only need three minutes to get to the apartment and three minutes to get back. It would be okay. It would all be okay, I thought then. I stood up and noticed my colleagues around me. Some of them looked too stunned to move. They just stood by their lab benches, swaying slightly and staring at their phones like maybe it was a joke. Their rational minds did not understand what had just happened. The woman at the desk behind me sat rubbing her jaw with her palm like it was sore, like she'd been sucker punched. As I stood, I touched her shoulder and she jolted. Time to go, I said calmly, but she just stared at me blankly. Other people were absolutely losing their shit. The grad student was grabbing everything on his desk like it might come in handy later. Phone charger, post-its, a plethora of pens, scotch tape, all dumped into his bag in one big sweep. Then he looked around his desk for other things he might need. The two women with children had already bolted, leaving their laptops still open on their desks. I grabbed the clunky 1950-style Geiger counter off my lab bench and followed out after them. The elevator heading downstairs to the main lobby was stifling. We all ignored the 2,000-pound warning on the inspection sign and packed in like sardines being chased by sharks. No one spoke. We stood with solemn expressions, but our eyes were darting all over the place. When we arrived in the lobby, I zigzagged through the sea of people, shoving aside backs and chests clad in scrubs and summer dresses. 
The back alley between the buildings was empty, and I started sprinting. The Geiger was awkward to hold, and I let it bounce against my upper thigh as I ran towards Madison Avenue. The Geiger got looks. Panicked looks. The catastrophic, before the word event, was starting to settle into people's minds as I carried proof through the street. We had 16 minutes to get to shelter by the time I crossed Madison Avenue. The street was packed with cars, gridlocked from sidewalk to sidewalk, and every one of them was leaning on the horn. Why don't we just leave the city? Don had asked me once when I told him about my emergency plan. For some reason, panic propels people to get into their cars and to just go without thinking where to. We get stuck. I shifted on my couch cushion. First, we'd get stuck because there would be too many cars and only one way out. And then, worst case scenario, the electrical pulse of an atomic explosion would kill the ignition. Our car would turn off and then never turn on again. The surrounding cars would have boxed us in by then because everyone else is thinking the same and we'd get stuck in the car. And then we'd probably catch on fire because, like, everything is on fire because the bomb releases a massive amount of heat and the whole city would probably go up in flames. So driving away might not be the best plan. Don had rolled his eyes at me. I propose a romantic end-of-the-world road trip, and you bring up fire and brimstone. At the time, I had laughed. We had been sitting in our dimly lit living room, and were drinking Earl Grey tea and lazily eating crackers with peanut butter. My intrigue with the end of the world was just part of me being a worrier. I never thought any of it would actually happen. People who build bunkers in their backyards don't actually want to use them and I didn't actually think the world would end. With 15 minutes to go, I was standing at the entrance of our apartment building, looking down Madison Avenue, slope upward on my right. Waves of people kept coming over the mound, heads popping into view, the streets a crowded pincushion as they weaved around the cars. Everyone was heading north, like there was a siren's call drawing them there. Everyone ignored the emergency transmission to find shelter. Most people didn't know what to do. Because how do you save yourself in 15 minutes' time? It's too late, their expressions were saying. It's too late, and now there's no time to prepare. So they just kept walking with the herd. I unlocked the first of the two heavy doors that led into the lobby of our apartment building. No doorman. It was an old building. At some point... Decades earlier, it had been a posh apartment building where every floor was a single apartment. I couldn't even imagine it. Then it was quartered off, one apartment became eight, welcome to the Upper East Side, economy style. They'd given the apartment to postdocs working at the hospital, the only way we could afford to live this close to work. But I never complained because the rent was dirt cheap. No one noticed me as I slipped into the building. Second heavy door with a large golden A emblazoned on it, then up a single flight of stairs. First door on the right was ours. I let myself in, grabbed the duffel bag from the coat closet, and then locked the door on my way out. Thirteen minutes, 
and I couldn't help but think that it was taking too long, that I was being too goddamn slow. The strap of the duffel bag weighed heavy across my sternum. The bag bounced up and down, hitting my other thigh, taking turns with the Geiger counter as I strode downstairs. Geiger, bag, Geiger, bag. I tightened the strap as I ran through the lobby and back out onto the street. I felt out of control under the weight of what I was carrying, not in control of all my limbs as I buckled under it. My plan was already going off the rails. When I had originally timed the walk to the rendezvous point, I hadn't been carrying anything at all. My plan is flawed, I realized, then ducked my head down and joined the crowd as we shuffled in the direction of uptown. We had eleven minutes left. A small child was right in front of me, and then he fell, knocking into my knees. He started crying before he even hit the ground, and his exasperated mother yanked him back up, pulled him towards her. There's a fallout shelter in the library on 96, I told her, and she looked at me like I was crazy. My words didn't make sense in real life. But then her dazed look retreated. Reality kicked into her brain and she nodded as she held the boy closer. Okay, thanks, she whispered, and then pulled the crying boy into the opposite direction of where everyone else was going. It was selfish of me to not let anyone else come with us. I knew that even then, but I also didn't care. I loved Don more than these other people. Don's life was worth more to me than that of a thousand strangers. Bringing others in on the plan would have reduced the chances of Dawn surviving. There was only so much space, air, and food to go around. Everything I had would go towards saving him, and I didn't care if the rest of the world burned as long as we could be together. But for a moment, I was chilled by my own ruthlessness. I saw myself from the outside, as I pointed the young mother and her son to a place that was not as safe as where I was headed, and felt sad for her. But it wasn't really a choice. It was survival, and if there ever was a time to be ruthless, it was on that day. By the time I had made it to the Hess building, I was spent. I reflexively flashed my ID when I got through the sliding doors, and then just as quickly realized that the entire lobby was empty. Seven minutes to go. I had made it with time to spare. A strange urge to whoop came over me, but what was there to celebrate? I walked behind the security desk and let my heavy bag drop to the ground in front of the elevators. No dawn. Worry crept up in me, cold and hard. I looked down the hallway towards the underground tunnel from where he would be coming, but it was empty. It took me longer than planned and he had already been in the building, so this didn't make any sense. I started to pace back and forth from the security desk back to the tunnel, just in case he decided to come from the front entrance. I didn't want to miss him when he got there. After pacing back and forth for a couple minutes like a caged animal, I sat down on the marble floor. Leaning against the wall, I tried to concentrate on my breathing. I had to stay calm. It was imperative I stay calm. 
New York had been a new home for me. I was bound to it through dawn. Our shared history ran through so many of its streets. We met in the Bronx while we were both attending a medical school named after a physicist. You're at Albert Einstein? People used to ask me, trying to sound interested. So you're getting a PhD in physics? Cool. Yes, science, I would explain. But no, not physics. Biology. HIV, to be specific. Sometimes, I still dream of the labs I once worked in. In my dreams, everything is perfect. Unshattered machines to run my experiments. Their pieces put together in a factory somewhere, not by our hands in a dingy room that smells of mold. Dr. Hubert says that these dreams are part of my PTSD. A part of the old world I'm not willing to give up, coming back to haunt me. He says that I shouldn't let it get to me and that we're making a new kind of science. One out of the bits and pieces of what was left behind. Particle science, he calls it. And then he'll break out in raucous laughter while holding up some especially good scrap he's uncovered while we sift through the rubble. Sometimes I laugh too, but it's mostly to humor him. Don and I met while the machines were still intact. Chasing degrees we thought would make us happy. The degrees didn't but each other's company did. Adventures spent drunk on cheap beer and wine and new love during those early years. I resisted him for a number of weeks, not ready to be consumed by another person just yet, but knowing we were better together than we were apart. Before I knew it, he was down on one knee in the middle of Washington Square Park and my resolve to resist had long been forgotten somewhere along the way. No one was coming. The tunnel's silence felt imposing. From where I was sitting, I could see the stream of people on Madison as they passed by the window. They didn't seem to see me, crouched down by the elevators. All their eyes remained trained straight ahead as they shuffled along. The walking dead, I thought. I started to hyperventilate. I couldn't go down there without Don. It just wasn't an option, because leaving him now meant leaving him forever. Precautions put into place to keep up groups like the Animal Liberation Front and PETA made the room where I was housing my mouse colony, Fort Knox. First, we needed my keycard just to use the elevator. Then my fingerprint would get us inside the facility. And finally, my personal code to get into a private room that only our lab had access to. It was the perfect place to hide underground while the world worked out its issues. There was a way, of course, if you knew how to get in. Stairs that led down to the basement couldn't be locked in case of a fire, and if the fingerprint reader failed during an electrical pulse, it could easily be bypassed. Besides, dozens of others had access into the main facility. But the final door, the one that required my code, would be safe. No one else knew the code. And then with horror, I realized that not even Don knew it. Three minutes. 
We had married on Cherry Hill in Central Park, with vows of forever exchanged at the bottom of that hill, and then in hushed, urgent tones long after that. Never leave me. My words floated into the dark of her bedroom. I won't. And I believed him. Dawn plugged a hole in my heart that no one else seemed to manage. I became unbroken, and I needed him. I needed him more than anything. Two minutes. Where the fuck was he? I stood up and strapped the bag over my shoulder. Took a deep breath. I had to make a decision. I searched the lobby for cover. Maybe I could crouch behind the security desk. The building was modern, its walls mostly made of glass. From what I had read, windows are held during a nuclear attack. The explosion blows through them like they are paper. As I looked at the windows across from me, I pictured the thousand shards it could become. Two stories high to let plenty of light into the atrium, the Pete's coffee to my right. There were chairs on their side, knocked over coffees, steaming puddles. I stood facing the entrance and tried to predict how I might die. Either I'd be speared by a giant shard of glass, set on fire, or, if we were close enough to the blast site, turned into nothing but a shadow, and then none of this mattered anyway. Then someone pulled my arm from behind. A guttural sound of relief came out of my throat, and we ran back to the elevators. I hit the button. Dawn and I hugged silently, and my whimper subsided. Dawn was trying to explain why he was late, while I was trying to gain composure. He was saying something about getting his patients to fire safety rooms, but I couldn't pay attention long enough to understand any of it. Now that Dawn was here, we had to focus. We had to stay together. The door to the elevator slid open, pinged. We got on. I swiped my ID card and hit the button to the sublevel. One minute. Both of us held our breath as we started to descend. This was it. I handed Don the Geiger counter and strapped the bag even tighter around my chest. We stood facing the cold metal of the elevator door, lined up beside each other like we were at the starting line of a foot race. The elevator doors opened. We quickly walked down the hall to the left. Then I swiped my ID again, pushed my finger onto the pad. I was rushing. The security system blinked, red, and beeped angrily, declining my passage. I swiped my ID again, pushed my finger down harder, trying to stop my hand from shaking. The EAS, informing us of a catastrophic event, did not specify where it would hit. It did not even give any information as to what it was, other than nuclear catastrophe, and informed us that New York City is now on lockdown. We could be dozens of blocks from where it would make contact, or we could be ground zero. A green bulb lit up above my pressed finger, and the door opened with a click. We ran through the entry room, ignored the safety gowns meant to protect the animals inside from our human germs, and headed down the hallway to our right. From somewhere behind us to our left, we could hear someone making a shushing sound. 
but we ignored it and kept going. Thirty seconds. At the end of the hallway, I entered my passcode. The door opened, then closed behind us. Twenty seconds. I threw the bag underneath the sink and listened for the usual rustling of cage bedding from the room next door, but it was dead silent. We crouched into the corner of the room with our backs against the wall. We hugged each other close, and I grasped Don's hand, squinted my eyes shut. Ten seconds. Boom. Boom.